This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Thank you, and welcome back to What Matters Most. Really, welcome back to What Matters Most, and thank you to everyone who tunes in around the world, the ever-growing, ever-more-beautiful audience. This show I'm going to dedicate to the loving universe and the spirit of Ram Dass, who's out there, and Yogananda, all those mystical angels, beings who help us. The guest today is just an icon, but I've fallen in love with her spiritually over the last hour. We did the longest pre-interview ever. It just was magnificent. So I'm already deeply touched, but now I join the million she has already touched over 40 years, four decades. That's insane. You know her also from her books. And I really want to say the latest book is just fabulous. Brave Thinking, the Art and Science of Creating a Life You Love. What an honor. Finally, welcome to the family on so many levels, Miss Mary Moraisi. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Paul. I'm really, really happy to be here, thrilled to be here. Given the events in your earlier life, how precious does it feel that you still exist and that you're here with me now? Indescribable. There's not words to put on it. Um, Yeah, that I think anyone who's been told that they have a very short amount of time to live and there are authority figures in white coats, titles on them that say they know and you don't. Um, uh, There's like the green and the grass gets greener, the blue and the sky, it's the rain is more poignant. Um, Just the the five senses of being in a physical expression of life. Um, It becomes very um, alive. Yeah, so that's how precious it feels. Do you feel on any level your thoughts and belief systems that you had in those early years of your life helped manifest the things that threaten your mortal time then? No doubt. I mean, we're dealing with uh, an energy that is um, sees all things, hears all things, and aligns with the way we're we're using our access to it. So let me just give you, your listener uh, just a quick little background on... Um, the journey. Uh, I was in high school. I had a high school experience like most young girls dream about. I was class vice president, head of the, on the drill team, had to lead the junior play, homecoming princess. That's my junior year in high school until the spring. My high school boyfriend had gone off to college. We'd been dating four years. He came uh, home for spring break. I got pregnant. May 1, I'm telling my mom and dad, this is 1966 that I'm pregnant. Uh, and my, my mother wept for me as if I had died. I think in her mind, all her dreams for me were dying. And um, we had a very hasty 10-person wedding. And um, then about two weeks later, I'm completing my junior year in high school, going to school. The principal of the high school calls me into his office and he says, are these rumors I'm hearing about you true? I said, well, if the rumors are that I'm pregnant and married in that order, then yes, they're true. And he just put his head in his hands and he goes, oh, Mary, you have great grades. You have terrific honors, but you are not going to be allowed to return here for your senior year. It would be totally inappropriate for a pregnant girl to get mixed in with the normal girls. But if you you do want a high school diploma, which I did, because even though I was now pregnant, I had always wanted to be a teacher. And I, 
uh, future of going off to college and becoming a teacher. So this was a detour in my mind, but not a end. So I did want a high school diploma. So if you want a high school diploma, there's a place for people like you. It's across the river in a part of Portland. I hadn't been allowed it to drive in after dark and it's after dark. It's Washington High School during the day. And then it becomes Washington Evening High School in the evenings where pregnant girls or delinquent boys, that's that's the that's the student body. The pregnant girls and delinquent boys go to school there. So I remember parking my car, walking up these steps, thinking, okay, every girl is either pregnant or uh, has a baby, and every guy is a delinquent. This is my new student. So my son was born in December of 66. Um, and by the way, my best girlfriends, there were four of us had been friends since fourth grade, and we had we were just this wonderful foursome for all those years. Then after I was pregnant and married, their mothers got together and decided their girls could no longer see me as if what I had was contagious or something. So I lost my friends. I lost my, my school. Um, I'm now relegated to be in school with delinquents. Uh, so clearly, um, yeah, I don't remember thinking this thought, but clearly the belief was I'm a bad girl. I mean, I, I can't even go to my normal school. So I graduated from Washington Evening High School in May. And then in July, I'm in an intensive care ward in a Portland hospital, having been diagnosed with fatal kidney disease. One kidney was totally destroyed with nephritis, kidney disease, and the other one was 50%. Uh, the test said a 50% destroyed um, and active nephritis. And so they told me, if we can get your blood toxin level reduced enough so you can sustain the surgery to remove your right kidney, then... Uh, maybe you will uh, have six months, up to six months. I had a seven-month-old son um, whose dad and he were living with my parents so my mother could watch him while I'm in intensive care. And now I'm being told, may never see him walk. You will, you will never take him to kindergarten. Uh, is, and I am um, devastated. And I believe, I remember the God of my upbringing was not a friendly place to go when you felt like you had really screwed up that the God of my upbringing was an, a God with a personality and angry and punishing. And um, so I just felt like, well, I'm just, I'm, I don't deserve to live. I'm, I'm, I'm a bad girl. Uh, and this was my thinking. Um, finally, the night before the surgery was scheduled, a woman walked in my room, introducing herself as a visiting chaplain who um, she said, I come several times a week and I'm always given the list of the, of the top, 10 surgeries that are going to happen uh, tomorrow in the order of their most seriousness. Your name's at the top of the list. Would you like someone to pray with you? I was scared. And I said, okay. She pulled her chair next to my bed. She didn't do anything that looked like prayer. She talked to me and she said, would you be willing to tell me what's been going on in your life the last year or two? So I told her my story. At the end of which she looked at me compassionately and she said, Mary, everything's created twice. You know, today I would say I had no landing page for that. I didn't know what she was talking about. Everything's created twice. And I'm like, what? And she says, you actually know this. In fact, everybody knows this. Almost nobody knows the power of knowing this. The bed you're laying on, the nightgown you're wearing, the sheet covering you, the walls, the floor, all the machinery that you're hooked up to, all of this had to be a thought before it could be a thing. And now that you're considering how everything is created twice, I hear how much you love your little boy, but I could hear in your story how much you've been hating yourself. You feel like you shamed your school, you shamed your family, you shamed yourself. 
Uh, and I'm, could you consider the possibility that that toxic thinking, everything that you can see was a thought before it could become a thing, that that has a correlation with toxicity that's rampaging your body and threatening your very life. Nobody I knew thought this way. Um, it was, and in fact, there was not a mind-body clinic at Harvard and UCLA and Stanford and all these places today. We take this for granted. Um, in those days, this was, well, it was all unknown to the people I knew that this there could be a correlation of this. So she said, so um, if you did get to live, what would you, what would you do? And immediately, I would have raised my little boy and I would become a teacher. And she said, so I want to uh, give you an opportunity. She said, um, to, when you come out of the surgery, the first thing you're going to you know, feel is there, there'll be some pain with the surgery. Uh, your mind will be occupied with that for two or three days. Then as that starts to ebb, your mind is going to want, your thinking is going to want to go down the same well-worn paths of thinking that you've been doing. And you'll, you'll pick that up again. So here's what I want you to do. Every time you think a self-loathing thought, interrupt it and say, no, that left with the kidney, because what we're going to do is we're going to do a prayer, scoop all that toxic energy and put it in the kidney that's going to get removed. And when it's removed, you want to keep it removed. So every time a thought, a self-loathing thought rises up, you say, no, that left with the kidney. Then immediately turn your attention and imagine that there's a little boy's hand in yours. He's five years old. You're walking up the steps to a school. And there's his kindergarten teacher and he gives you a big hug and he's happy and he goes into his kindergarten class. And then you hear the click, click, click of your heels around the corner and there's your first classroom and you're a teacher. Then fast forward and you're sitting at a great big auditorium or stadium and you see all these caps and gowns on the floor and they call your son's name and he walks across the stage, picks up his diploma, waves it and you're in the stands and you're cheering for his accomplishment in life. And your teaching career is growing. And then you fast forward and you're sitting in the front row of a wedding and it's your son's wedding. He's married, love of his life. And you are the mother of the groom and your teaching career is flourishing. Just keep repeating that. And she left. He did the surgery and the next day. They told my family gathered that one kidney was totally destroyed. The other, he, the surgeon said, it's all withered. It's pockmarked. I don't know if she'll even get six months. Um, and... So, you know, I'm in the hospital and my numbers after about five days stopped getting worse. They just started to stabilize a bit and they were stable then for the next 10 days. And the, the physicians were saying, well, um, maybe you're going to have a little longer than we might have thought. So if you want to go home, we don't know if you can go home for a few days or a, a week. We don't know how long it'll be before you have to come back here. But that, you could have that time with your son and so I went home in an ambulance. I was so weak, I couldn't get my head off the pillow. And I had to go three times a week to the urologist to have my numbers checked. And my numbers, they were they, they stabilized. And then after about 30 days, they just slightly improved and slightly improved and kept improving and improving. And about five and a half to six months after the surgery, I'm sitting in a conference room at the same hospital with the surgeon, the urologist, the other specialists, and they're scratching their heads and they're saying, we have no science for what's happening with you. And the surgeon looked me in the eye and he said, I saw that kidney, pockmarked, withered, active nephritis. See, this is before we had uh, dialysis, before we had transplants. 
So a, this kind of kidney disease at this point was a death sentence. And he says, we don't have any science for this. We don't know if it's going to last or how long it'll last, but I guess just keep doing what you've been doing. Well, I didn't even know what I'd been doing because I was at what today we would call an unconscious competent. I did what she told me, but I wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to help me. It wasn't, it, I wasn't aware enough. And I was very grateful to get well and stay well, but I was not yet curious about what was the science of this? How did this work? until I was in undergraduate school. I finally got myself into undergraduate school and uh, a series of things occurred in October of 1971, where I, all of a sudden I saw, oh, this is related to that journey, that she's really right, that everything is created twice and that I'm first creation is in my mind. So if I'm thinking I can't, or I'm thinking it's gonna be hard, or I'm thinking this is never gonna work, I'm, I'm predicting. And I can choose what I'm going to think. And I began to, and a series of things occurred, one of which is I touched that, what uh, Emerson and Thoreau called the transcendental self. I touched that part of me that can notice what I'm noticing. So we, I could notice if the thought I was thinking was empowering or disempowering, expansive or contractive. And I began to be like a thirsty sponge for everything I could find in the field of well, all the religions, world philosophies. Uh, I got a uh, another degree in counseling psychology, a master's degree. I attended a two-year seminary. I, I was looking for all the ways that people had found to uncover that power that's in every single one of us for purposes that were beyond uh, something really that had meaning and mattered to us, but we had never been able to achieve how to unlock that potential that's in every one of us. And that began to be my life's work. You also got your wish. You got to be a teacher. I did. I, I did get that. And within before I even graduated in my classical classroom teaching certificate, I knew I wanted to teach another whole level of content. What is it about teaching to and serving that just so fuels your life? Hmm. Well, of course, I was born in the I was born in 49. So in those days, the models of women who were successful were, you know, we, we didn't have the plethora of opportunities, uh, ideas, because uh, later I became an entrepreneur, business owner, built multiple businesses. Uh, but the idea of impacting someone and seeing their the light come on and their life expand is something that has never left me. That really is what called me to it. Uh, and it's what I serve every single day with, you know, any of the programs we create, any of the work that I do, uh, it's in that in service of that. And really, you're working a, not against, but what you're doing is turning a light on in a lot of dark rooms because uh, not for malicious reasons, but just at the term in terms of our evolution, we've been given a lot of Newtonian ideas that were just these separate particles wandering through space little life forms scrounging for some scraps, trying to get ahead of other life forms, when really there's so much magic and mystery in every moment and everywhere you look, if you just stop and pause and even feel into it. Yeah, I, I used to feel like life was a pie and I needed to get my piece. <laughs> if I didn't grab mine, it you know I wouldn't get my piece. And then over the studies and the work, I began to realize, no, it's not a piece, it's a bakery. 
we can cook up. Uh, it's all the assets of anything we would ever want to bring forth are available there in invisible form. That's all it is. How did you come up with this whole thinking brave concept? How did you evolve into this? Part of it came from my studies. You know, there were two revolutions in the United States. The first revolution was the revolution that created the United States of America. The second uh, was a revolution of thinking. They called this the second revolution. And it happened in the Northeast with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, others who began to experiment with a different kind of thinking. They discovered and called it the transcendentalism, meaning that there is a part of us that really is our essential self. It's the most true part of us that is transcendent to all things circumstantial, all conditions, all circumstances, all situations. We have circumstances, we have situations and conditions, but there is that in us that is more than that. The way to tap into that is to notice what you're noticing. So you can notice whether you're climbing upstream or you're going in the current of your own being. And they had many different practices for that. And so, uh, but it does take brave thinking. We've all been trained and conditioned in common hour thinking, which is what Thoreau said. Thoreau said. He, uh, when he did this experiment, living two years, two months, and two days at Walden Pond, he was invited to these conversations that Emerson would host every Sunday night. And he, he had money uh, from his lecture series. And so he would bring in like Henry James and uh, William James and others, um, uh, Hawthorns to, you know, let them live in a, in one of his houses there for six months so they could be part of these generative conversations. The um, Alcotts, you know, they they dreamed up the first school that was not, did not use corporal punishment in which it was, the premise of the school was girls have genius in them too, not just boys. Breaking boundaries of thinking. Um, and I became a student of that. Uh, and so I've been to Concord many, many times on a pilgrimage walk, really. And when you go to where Thoreau lived, he didn't, he built this one room place. He didn't, he's not a hermit. He wasn't a hermit there. He, he, yeah, he, he was a surveyor. He would survey the Merrimack River, uh, um, Cape Cod with his brother. Uh, he writes, but he wanted, he said, I went to the woods because I wanted to learn the essentials of life. And let life teach me its truth. And not when I came to die, find out that I hadn't even really lived. So in his, he writes journals, uh, which will, would eventually be published as Walden. But in the early part of Walden, which is his journey, uh, I know you wrote uh, about Maui and different places. And well, that's what he did. And um so he's writing about this and he's he's at the lake and he's uh, it, it's it's called Walden Pond, but it looks like a, a nice size lake. Um, he says, um, I came to the woods to and then he says what I just said, you know, find out the essential truths of life and really, really get on the green growing edges of my own becoming. I noticed today that for this first I've been here seven days now, I noticed today that I have been taking the same path to the lake in the morning to have my morning bath. And I thought, 
Well, if I, who am wanting to confront and learn from life on its fresh, what it's teaching me today, I'm taking the same well-worn path to the lake. How often then am I walking down the same well-worn paths of thinking without even knowing it? He says, I want to be a surveyor, an, a, a, an excellent uh, surveyor, not only of geography, I want to become an excellent surveyor of my own inner cosmology. And for that, I must notice what I'm thinking. Didn't he also say, I took the road this travel and it made all the difference? No, that was, I'm trying to think, uh, Frost. Frost, yeah, Frost said that. But he didn't you have to march. He said, don't, don't march to anybody else's drummer. And he says this, and there's a real, you know, I I cared about this quote by Thoreau. Everybody knows it's a great quote. If one advances confidently in the direction of their dreams. I knew that was a great quote. It's You see it on plaques and this is and that's. But I didn't know it was a code until I went first, the first time to Concord and sat at the lake with my husband. We're reading back and forth from the, from Walden. And when you get to the, the conclusion he says, I've learned this at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of their dream, you don't have to do that. You get to have any life you want. You can live in the mundane. You can live in the repetitive. You can live in the ain't it awful. You get to create a life by your own thinking that's your world. He says, I learned this at least, that if one advances confidently in the direction of their dream, well, you can't move in a direction you don't have an idea of. If you think about everything we do, it's it has vision-driven action in it. Like I'm going to the grocery store. You got a picture in mind where you want to end up. Otherwise, you're just aimlessly wandering around. So a dream then is not something, it's not a good goal. It's not even a worthy goal. Because a goal is something you know how to do. You just haven't done it. But a dream is something you would absolutely love and you have no idea how to bring it about. And by means of having something in mind that has worthiness to you, meaning, purpose, aliveness, passion in it, uh, it causes you to partner with a part of yourself you would never be required to if you just operated by what you already know. And unleashing that inner genius in you and the partnership between you and an infinite um, that knows all things and you can tap into it. Um, so he says, uh, advances confidently in the direction of their dream, endeavoring to live the life they've imagined, which means even though your outside circumstances still look the same, you're imagining and operating from the feeling tone that this is simply what it looks like while this vision is all coming together. Um, and then he says, when you do this, you pass an invisible boundary. And all sorts of things happen that never otherwise would have occurred. And you live uh, and you you pass an invent and you, you no longer are caught in common hour thinking. So common hour thinking is I want to start a business. Well, then I need a business plan and I need to get uh, funding and I need investors and all the common ways that people start businesses. You can start where you are with what you have if you have a different thinking. So brave thinking then is thinking beyond circumstances, situations, and conditions. And there is a way to draw from really the infinite side of our nature ideas that will lead us one step at a time. How did this girl with the funky kidney end up working with the Dalai Lama? 
<laughs> she had a vision. I had it was a burning question. Uh, I, um, I by this point I'm a, a I had become a minister, which is the only way in those days back in the early '80s I knew to uh, teach uh, principles and help people. Uh, there was no the coaching industry hadn't been developed. You know, personal development was not something people. Uh, I, I remember with a girlfriend saying, just imagine if someday a book like this is on the New York Times bestseller list. Imagine that now today. I mean, 50 years later, it's just so amazing for me. Uh, so I um, I had gone to hear him speak. He came to Portland, Oregon. I'm in a 30,000 auditorium way up in the nosebleeds, and I'm listening to him. And I'm thinking, how does he do it? How does he have the Chinese government, you know, systematically trying to end this beautiful 5,000-year-old culture called Tibetan, Tibetanism, and uh, destroy their temples and lock people up for in prison. If you if you say out loud on the streets in Tibet, Omane Padmehom, which is effectively if you were on the streets of the U.S. and said, uh, our Father who art in heaven, or Hero Israel, our Lord, uh, the Lord our God is one. You would be not only you, but your family would be arrested for sedition to our government and put away for life. And that's what goes on. In, and that was what was going on also in Tibet, not the Chinese people, but the Chinese government. And here he's speaking, and I could not find one wave of bitterness, revenge, victimhood. I'm thinking, well, how does he have these conditions? And yet I can't feel any of what would be a normal human response, we would think, in this man. What, how does he do that? And that was a question that I just kept thinking into. And, and then I started thinking how much I would love. And it was, I mean, I'm, I've got a little tiny ministry in Oregon at this time that I would even imagine that I'm sitting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and we're having a cup of tea. And he says to me, so you have a question. And I ask him my question. And I would imagine this, not constantly, but now and then. And then fast forward and my work has grown. And now I've um, written my first book and published in 96. Uh, so it's like 15 years later. But I, by then I'd read everything he had written and listened many times to him. And I'm in Chicago for a book signing at one of the large bookstores there. And I get a call from my publicist that uh, the person who was going to be one of the main speakers at um, the Buddhist Christian conference um, I had was ill and wasn't able to do it, and they wondered if I would give a talk on transcendentalism. So I was in Chicago anyway, so I said, I'll stay a few days, I'll do that. And I got uh, that, then all the speakers got to be, it, it was 300 speakers, uh, and he came and spoke to all of us one day. And so I was much closer. I was not in the nosebleeds. It was much closer. And I just thought, oh, maybe there's an opportunity. There was no opportunity to meet him there. But I did give my talk. And about four months later, I got a call, quote unquote, out of the blue from the office of Tibet. And uh, his brother had been in the lecture. And so fast forward after that event, uh, His Holiness is having his dream. And he said, I want to do a project. I think I'll call it the Synthesis Project and invite world leaders in all the different uh, sectors of life, you know, education, medicine, governance, um, 
ecology, conservation. He had all this, this group of people and let's get together, but they have to be innovators, people who are identified as innovators in their field. And we'll get together and we'll, we'll do a, a seven year process where we'll get together every two years and do, uh, have conversations about how what our area of expertise could do to help solve world problems. He says, but you know how these meetings go. He says, most people, the, all the, the dissent that comes is almost always over religion. So we need somebody to facilitate this meeting who has an appreciation for all the different traditions so they can, they can help draw things together. And his brother said, you know, I heard this woman speak. And then they called me and they invited, they had three other groups or two other groups they were interviewing also, but he called me uh, to come represent my group and uh, take an interview. I flew to Delhi, did the long drive. They have an airport now in Dharmasala, but they didn't in those days, uh, up to, up to um, Dharmasala and go through security the day of my meeting with him and turn the corner. I walked in, he's sitting down, he's got a teapot in his, uh, in his hand he's pouring some tea he says would you like some tea that's the first word I went I got chills from the top of my head through my whole body it was like, oh my gosh and he then he interviewed me and then he turned to me and he says so do you have a question and I said I do have a question I wanted to ask you for a very long time I'm you know I can't imagine I've only been told some of the things that you've been through and what's happened with the Chinese uh, and this is not Chinese Chinese government not Chinese people Chinese people wonderful people it's Chinese government does this and I said so how is it that you're able to be where I can't hear maybe anything in you of bitterness or revenge or anger or victimhood how do you do that he goes oh we all have friends Friends, easy love, easy forgive. Ah, but we do have sacred friends. Sacred friends, very, very difficult, very difficult. Chinese government, my sacred friend. Sacred friend is there so that you you either turn to bitterness and revenge and victim, or you use that same energy to generate a compassion that's bigger than the pain they bring. I would never, and he had just received his Nobel Prize at this point for peace. He said, I would never have had to, to evolve my heart to the place to be bigger than their pain. It still hurts. It's like an arrow I feel in my body when I get a call that a childhood friend or something, someone or any Tibetan is now incarcerated for practicing our tradition. It's still, I feel that, but I don't stay there. And I generate, and they, they have a term for it called bodhicitta, which is the generation of a compassion for no reason. It's not because you give compassion because the person deserves it. You do it because it makes the world a more compassionate place. And um, he, I had the privilege, well, I was selected, my group was, I had the privilege of working in the seven-year project, just being in his presence uh, as many times as I had sitting right next to him for days at a time was a teaching into and unto itself. Such a beautiful description. In your title, you used the word art, which I really liked. How do we create a masterpiece for this manifestation of this beautiful life we've been given? Oh, thank you for that question. So, yes, I put the art and science of creating a life you love. Because uh, you want it, you don't want it to just be in your imagination. You actually want to put your hands on it. You want to have it. 
And you're going to create something. If you just keep breathing another three years, you're going to have results. It's not a matter of if, but you're going to have results. It's what will they be? So the art is in the visioning. So in the same way, if you want a wonderful dream house, you just don't hand a, bu a bucket of money to a builder and say, build me something I would really love. He can't tell you what you would love. You have to tell him what you would love in specificity. It's how many bedrooms, how large is the house? Is it you know, a mountain? Is it by a stream? Is it in town? Is it a high? What is it? So something, and you will know what you would love by does, would I love that? You're testing it. We're doing it. Most of us just choose for what we think we can have versus what we would really love. So you start with the question, because there's four main areas of life where you're going to have results anyway, just by breathing. One of those is in health. Everybody has health results. Everybody has relationship results. Everybody has what they're doing with their time and talent called a vocation, whether you're earning income, doing it or not, you're doing something with your time and talent. Is it fulfilling? Is it meaningful? Is it, or are you just trading time for money? And if you could have a vocation or do something with your time and talent that you're absolutely in love with, what would that be? And then the fourth quadrant is really a freedom quadrant where you have time what matters to you it's freedom to go and give and contribute in what ways in the ways that matter to you so you're going to have results in all of those four areas and you design a dream for i encourage people to do it for three years from now it doesn't take three years usually to bring it about but if you say one year your subconscious and your memory knows so much about what you've accomplished in one year you're, you tend to dampen what you what your real dream is so you dream up a life you would absolutely love and having zero idea how you, you suspend the how to generate the, the vision. Now that vision has a vibration to it. When you step inside of it in your mind and you can feel it, there's an expansiveness that you'll feel. And so that's why you, you d develop it with specificity. The, the mind thinks in pictures. So if you, think about, if you think about the front door to where you live, or you think about the kitchen sink in the place where you live. Or you think about the bed you sleep in most often. You didn't see the letters D-O-O-R. You saw a picture of a door. You saw a picture of a sink. You saw a picture of a bed. So because the mind thinks in pictures, let there be <laughs> firmament, let there be birds, let there be. So you have that capacity and so do I in us. And whether we're aware of it or not, we are saying let there be with our thoughts. So when we become aware of that, we can shape those thoughts in pictures that are of what we would really love. I have no idea how this can happen, but nevertheless, what you would love has nothing to do with how to do it. It has to do with what you would love. And you define that in the absence of knowing how. That's the art, is to have the vision. The vibration then is how you match that vision through the way you're living your life, the actions you're taking, the beliefs you have, the paradigms you transform, uh, all of the things that you think are, are in your way. Uh, and there's a practice to that. And that's really what this new book, I'm just so happy to have codified this. Uh, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the universe, really, how things occur. But to put it in a simple, easy for people to use and access way I just, it's the culmination of my 50 years of study and 40 years of teaching. You don't really see yourself as just this form, do you? You seem to move through the world. This is form is operating here, 
but I sense in you just this tip of the iceberg that whatever you are, it doesn't have a name and a social security number, a little story is really the operating system, the essence of who you are behind all this that you're doing here, which is really beautiful. Do you live in that way or am I just projecting? No, no, I do live in that way. I mean, I, w- I, w- I won't tell you that I don't at times where you know, we, we, we have free thinking institutes in the building of that and the things and we're um, wanting to bring the biggest impact we can in the, in, with the resources that are ours yet and the ones we're dreaming of. Um, so, uh, but my major dominant way of being is this way that there's, we're all more than we, we're far more than we've ever known that we really are. And we contain so much more than we've ever thought. And that's true for every single one of us. The world does not uh, see that, does not support that. And we are not raised in that thinking. I'm just so very grateful that I've devoted this much time of my life to study what others have seen also and codified in their own ways uh, that have helped me. You know, when I met, I did, did you, did you see in there when I met Nelson Mandela, I'd had the opportunity to have a two hour talk with him. Yes. And what's beautiful too, is how he was so also like the Dalai Lama, not carrying the hate and the vengeance. And here's a guy who's in jail forever and ends up president of that country and calls for reconciliation. That's what I said. That's why I wanted to talk to him. I thought who on our planet gets sentenced to life imprisonment at hard labor does 27 years of hard labor, then is released, not after he's dead, before he's dead, and then becomes president of the country who sentenced him to life. Who on our planet does that? One guy. I want to ask him, how did you do that? What was going on inside of you that this is your result? And one thing led to another, and I was invited to speak at the World's Parliament of Religions event in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, and he was coming to receive awards that were being given to him there. And uh, I was invited uh, to be a party of six of us who got to be with him for two hours and we could ask any question we wanted. We were told only not to take any flash photography because his eyes were so damaged. The retinas were so damaged from the uh, the courts in these rock courts where he worked. And so I was sitting right next to him and I said, so how did you do it? How did you go from being this guy who got sentenced and you do this? And how how did it occur then that really what was happening inside of you that you would end up president of this wonderful country? And he goes, oh, the, the one who get, went to prison could never be president. That guy was angry, resentful, mad. We had started out with peaceful protests that many of us were killed. And I was so angry and so revengeful that I turned to hate and 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 violence and i was sentenced to prison for that and he said in my first year few years i all i i just hated the jailers i hated everything and i was i was just stuck in hate and uh then one day like a drop of water on a very parched desert land a thought came what if Oh, because he said all I could think was it's all over. It's all over. This the the fight for the freedom of people and the ending of apartheid is all over. It's all over. And I, I kept thinking that thought. And then one day this thought occurred. What if it's not? And I went, what if what if it's not? What if it's not? And then behind that, the thought came, what if your being here 
is actually could be part of the ending of apartheid. How's that going to happen? It, there was no answer. But the idea that what if my being here could actually be part of the ending of apartheid had a different, I, I felt better. He said, the first thing I noticed was that I felt better thinking that thought. And I was just in the depths of darkness for several years. And then that would lead ultimately, he called it climbing the slope of thought. That you have a thought that is more generative, more alive making, and you think that thought, and then you're given another thought, another thought. And eventually the idea of writing letters and writing letters and writing letters, and then sending them to different press people and, and publishing places around the world. And eventually the American media picked it up. And uh, then the governments got together and did an uh, economic embargo. And one thing led to another and to his release. And then he ran for president. He said, that, that man could have never been this. I had to become a match for them. Profound. Yeah. So for, to me, that's typical brave thinking. You're thinking, he's here he is in this little tiny cell. And he's thinking about making global change. Not because he has the circumstances telling him he can, but he can visualize it, think about it in his mind, and what can he do with what he has, which is one of the principles. We can we can move some energy by doing the thing we can do with what we have. Uh, and those often look like baby steps, but guess what? Baby steps will take you all the way up Mount Everest if you just keep taking them. After four decades, what's left for you that you really want to manifest and kind of put into the world or or to experience or to feel? I have been so passionate about this um, pattern that produces results in any way you want, that you get in harmony with. And, and the freedom, the spiritual freedom of that, as well as economic. You know, I, I teach people, you want a full spectrum success. A lot of people get successful in money, and then they're bankrupt in relationships or health. Uh, they have no free time. You want to be wealthy. You can be wealthy in all four areas. You can have health that's dynamic, relationships that are meaningful and deep, uh, life-giving, where you learn what it truly means to be loved and to love, to truly love and be loved in this lifetime while we're in the physical. Uh, uh, you can have work that has meaning and purpose, and you can have freedom to really go where you want to go, do what you want to do, give, especially give what you want to give uh, and the impact of that. So that's that's a system that we train in, uh, in brave thinking. The What's left for me is my friend Bob Proctor just died last year and other of my dear friends who have passed on and they didn't either, it wasn't their intention, it wasn't their their dream to put together something that had enough legacy that their their not only their work but the work they were empowered enough people to be the teachers be the presenters uh to carry on uh what you yourself had seen helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people millions really uh, so that's what i'm putting in place now and i have this wonderful faculty some of which are my own adult kids one by one my four adult kids in midlife they all went off and built their own businesses and then in 30s and 40s they said you know i i can help you know i can i I'm an, i have an expert the expertise in this and, i mean you raised me in this and I put them through a rigorous study program and they're part of the faculty i have other faculty members here and it's my goal to do a smooth, easy. I don't think I'm ever going to not want to do some teaching, 
but I want to shift it from it's Mary Morrissey to it's the work, it's the Brave Thing Institute. And that so that's what I'm serving as a bigger vision. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.